Hey everybody and welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars, where it's all about everybody has a car story. From celebrities to car personalities to athletes to just people who bring their cars to car shows and cruise nights. I'm Randy Cardoon and before we get going... Are you listening to this on iTunes? Don't forget, subscribe to our iTunes page. It's absolutely free. You'll be notified when a brand new podcast is uploaded. And if you like what we're doing, take a moment to rate us and give us a review. You can like us on SoundCloud and on our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and you could also check us out on YouTube. This week, Blue Nelson. He grew up in a Hollywood family. His mom was on the Burns and Allen TV show back in the 50s, while his dad directed nearly 100 TV shows, including classics like Get Smart, Gilligan's Island, Love American Style, and Nanny and the Professor, Gary Nelson. Now, like his dad, Blue eventually became an assistant director and a Hollywood producer. But he liked adventure. He liked cars. So he went out on a Don Quixote-like quest to find cars all over the world and reunite them with their previous owners, along with just finding cars with great histories and great backstories and bringing them to his San Fernando Valley home. That's coming up in a moment. But first, back in talking about Cars 48, this is about a year ago when we were at SEMA, I interviewed auto designer Henrik Fisker and Galpin Auto Sports' Bo Bachman. I ran into Fisker again just recently at the Art Center College of Design show in Pasadena. Well, I love this uh, Art Center uh, classic car show. Uh, obviously, I graduated from Art Center, but one of the great things is that you have amazing amount of interesting cars that people you know bring here the Sagato here behind is new there's some cars every year you've never even seen before and of course uh, the main thing here is celebrating design so versus a lot of other concourse was about you know is the screws perfect is the leather perfect and how well is the you know uh, a car assembled from you know from the restoration this is really about celebrating the automobile itself the car the design and people are very relaxed, uh, relaxed event. But there's enough cars to make it excited for a day. And it's so different. I mean, we've got a Fiat Jolly. We've got your Fisker Karma. We've got it right next to a, a Citroen. And over here, we've got some classics like a Studebaker and a, and a Tiber just, just through the entire uh, group of cars. Well, that's the cool thing here as well, that we really have all the way from, you know, back in almost when the car was invented, till today's cars. So you also have concept cars, a couple of concept cars here, and you have production cars, but all the cars here have to be cool. So you don't see, of course, a normal car in here. They either have to be very old and, and unique or they have to be cool. So it's an event where if you love cars, there will be a car for you here. <laughs> it's amazing. Henrik, you were talking uh, earlier about a, a big news as far as you're concerned and your automotive concerns. Tell us about it. Well, I've just started Fisker Inc. Uh, so I've started off Fisker again. Of course, the original assets of Fisker were sold to a Chinese company, and they are now making a, a, a version with those uh, tools uh, of the original car, the Fisker. But um, I wanted to really innovate and come up with something new, and it, obviously it's, it's going to be something quite a difficult task to come up with a more radical design car than the Fisker Karma was. However, um, we're taking the company completely electric, and we have a new battery, and we're going to have a range of over 400 miles, which is probably the world's longest range. We're going to have a lot of innovation in the vehicle, the way it's constructed. And we will be showing some images of the vehicle uh, within the next week or so, 
And we're attempting to make a really radical electric vehicle with a lot of interior space and designing the vehicle from ground up to be elect to, to be, you know, taking advantage of the electric powertrain layout. So you're gonna see an extremely low front end, uh, really taking advantage of the fact you have no engine, so you can make everything very aerodynamically, very fast. Uh, so a lot of interesting things in the vehicle that's going to clearly signify it's electric. Any idea what your timetable is as far as when maybe the public might be able to get into a car like this and what are we looking at from a price standpoint? So we haven't announced uh, when we're going to put it into production but we'll be showcasing it uh, probably the, the, the prototype middle next year and uh, we will probably have the price range since so the upper end of where the Teslas are. Um, in terms of, of the future, we are looking to do a mass-produced car as well, where we probably will want to go to make a fairly small car for uh, a, a lower price, uh, in the lower price segment. Um, so, But we're not quite ready to, to tell too much about that yet. Of course, the classic moments in talking about cars history, you and Bo Bachman earlier in the year, uh, we got you at SEMA, and we had you talk about your cars and your history. And one of the things you brought up was something I don't think anybody ever saw coming. The only thing that I've never done and no desire to do is a minivan. <laughs> yeah, but if you did, you'd murder it. I, I would make it very cool. I, I don't know that you could fit all the kits in it, but it would look really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Bo, is there one project you think that kind of stands out? Is there something that comes to mind as something you've always thought would be kind of cool to do, but you haven't had a chance to do yet? Yeah, now the Fisker minivan. <laughs> 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 oh man, I, you know, I can't get anything out of my head now. Other than that, you know, I got a bunch of kids at home. That would be awesome. You know? Watch out, SEMA next year. <laughs> well, it wasn't really a Fisker minivan, but I would say a Fisker designed minivan because I've never designed a minivan, and I have never had a huge desire to do so because you're very constrained. It becomes sort of like a rounded box, but. I did uh, call Bo after and said, hey, you know, we did this interview. Should we do a minivan for SEMA? It could be really cool. And I did a little quick sketch and sent it to him. And he says, that is so cool. Uh, and then what happened was we, we, we both had so many things to do that it just, and it would have been a one-off because quite frankly, it probably would have been a, a minivan for a mom and dad and, and, and seven very small children because obviously it would have been low and wide and very sexy. You know, you listen to talking about cars, you get in on the ground floor of things like what could be, and there's a picture of the Fisker Mini. Well, somewhere in my iPhone there's a picture of it. Uh, I don't know if you're going to ever release that. But I was going to say, if I can ever uh, convince you to let us borrow it maybe for a minor posting. <laughs> we'll see. But uh, I think that what I kind of, one of the things I took from that uh, was that that uh, with our new electric car, we are really trying to maximize interior space without sacrificing how the vehicle looks. So the, the, when you see the vehicle, you'll, you'll probably not believe that this has a, a lot of interior space, a lot more than some of our competitors. And uh, you, don't, you, you can't see it on the design, but it's because of the unique packaging we have done in this vehicle. And that's kind of the exciting part, what the opportunity give us when we go into electric vehicles and truly 
explore the possibilities. Fisker Inc.'s Henrik Fisker. Now, Blue Nelson. I videotaped an interview with him sitting in front of his newest acquisition, a 1947 Chrysler Town & Country, basically a four-door Woody. Not a wagon, mind you, but a four-door sedan that has wood all over the place, although a lot of it was missing from the trunk area. You'll see it coming up here on YouTube eventually here. Now, I asked him about his first car memory. I am 48 now, and uh, I suppose the first memory of of cars would be riding in my dad's old Porsche and I can remember doing that maybe as early as six or seven years old just cruising along with my dad and having him fix the seat belts because they were real specific and kind of a pain in the butt and I remember that feeling and having a, the top down which he never put up and that's a very specific memory so probably six years old would be the first memory I have of cars. Now, is that the same Porsche that's in the garage the one that you came home from the hospital in? Yeah, it is. That's a 62 Roadster that he picked up at uh, Competition Motors in Hollywood, brand new. And um, yeah, I came home from the hospital the day I was born, or I think the day after, really, with my mom and my dad. Uh, no child seat. You know, I think it's sort of in a bassinet in my mom's arm, something like that. Yeah, it's that same car. You're, you're in the bassinet in the Porsche. Yeah. Right, and that just—did they have like a place to put the seatbelt through or something like that? No, that just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> off the bassinet in the Porsche. And of course, your mother years later kind of divulged some information that was kind of like, "Oh, mom, do you have to tell me that?" Oh yes, uh, and now we're divulging it yet again. Uh, yeah, I think at one point I asked if I was born in the car, and she said, "Do you mean, do you mean conceived in the car? Do you mean born in the car, birthed in the car?" Uh, so. Uh, apparently, yeah, apparently, what's the next question? Okay, let's move right along, shall we? Car that you had in high school, car that you took to the prom. Ooh, that's a good question. It was a 1967, I had a 1967 VW convertible, and then I had a, I had a Dormobile bus, which I actually still have, and, but we rented a limo to go to the prom at the Queen Mary, and that was kind of fun. What kind of limo was that? Uh, yeah, it was uh, long. We ask probing in-depth questions here. Uh, I know that it was not air-cooled, and at the time, if it wasn't air-cooled, I couldn't tell you what it was. <laughs> it was just big. Yeah, it was, it was big, and, it had, and, we, and I, we went with twins, and my best friend took one twin, and I took the other, and then later on, I don't remember who, who went home with who. I was going to say, you didn't get confused somewhere down the line, did you? Oh, we were confused from, from the start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you got into the movie business eventually. You, you started doing all sorts of things in the movie business. Your dad is in the movie business or was in the movie business. How did you transition from what you were doing with your movies behind the scenes to uh, doing kind of what you do now, in a sense, with a lot of these cars where you start... I don't, I don't know if Car Broker really is a fair label for what you do because it's so much more than that. Yeah, I, it, the, the, title, the title still eludes me. I don't, I'm not really sure what it is. I'm so, I don't even have a business card. I think it says purveyor. That's about it. I, I, I get hired to go find cars that have been lost from families or lost through generations, so I'll go and do that kind of archaeology. And then uh, sometimes I just find a classic car that I want to restore and find a new home for it. Um, so the, the, it's not broker. It's, I, I actually, I couldn't, I can't pinpoint it. I do know that involved in what I'm doing is a lot of traveling, a lot of researching, 
a lot of meeting interesting people and really looking hard for stuff that's vanished. A lot of times it's actually just from photographs and I'll go to the last place it was seen in whatever country, ask around and see if I can get somewhere with it. But And that's true. You just don't do it here in the United States. You do it no matter where the car is. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the cars that I'll try to find, or even motorcycles or antique bicycles, tend to be in the U.S., but um, I find myself traveling all over the world. Not, I haven't, I haven't actually gone to Africa as much as I did when I was much younger looking for cars. Almost, 100 and, almost 120 countries looking for, it could be cars, it could be antiques, but mostly cars and motorcycles, yeah. You are the Indiana Jones of car purveyors, I would imagine. I mean, how how do you get these leads and then decide, well, I'm going to go to Moldova or wherever a car happens to be? Is it because of the story? How do you find out? Yeah, Indiana Jones, that's a that's a that's a big title without without the budget and without the return. Yeah, yeah well, but I'm I'm with you there. Indiana Indiana Blue. Okay. <laughs> Some people may remember the car as their grandfather's car and they and they remember it in in Poland or they remember it in Zimbabwe and this is the last they saw of it. I might try to gather some information based on previous documents and registration papers perhaps. And then uh, I'll actually go to that country in the last place it was seen and try to meet a, a former family member or a lot of times I'll go into a small town and pick the oldest garage, the oldest service building and say, do you remember a and it could be something so esoteric that like a horse or some kind of special car that there aren't a lot of. I'm not asking when was the last time you saw the, a green Corolla because I'll never get an answer. Usually what we're looking for is something special. So it can be easier to find if you ask somebody about uh, a single cylinder Indian, pre-war Indian or an old flat frame Zindap or something. And then because those are so special, it tends to um, bring up those memories rather quickly in older people that may have worked on them or saw them. So that in itself can help help you find stuff a lot quicker. The less common and the more unusual, then of course the easier it would be to find. Take me back to the first car, the first time you ever started doing something like this. What's the story behind that? Oh my gosh, take you back to the first car. How did it start really for you? I, I guess that's kind of where I'm going. Uh, we were living in Zimbabwe and I had Got, I got my driver's license. I took my test in Zimbabwe, and then I wanted to find... I was still interested in Volkswagens, even as a kid, because we had them growing up, you know? And I wanted to find an early vintage Volkswagen. And one of the people that we met on, on the film we were, we were working on uh, said that in Cape Town in South Africa, there was a really early bus that he would like to get. Maybe if I was heading that way, I could find it for him. And, of course, you know, going from Zimbabwe to Cape Town as a 16-year-old isn't... It's not something that I guess I would wish on any 16-year-old back in the 80s. And I just got my driver's license, right-hand drive. And I think that was the first time I actually went to look for someone else to find to find the bus. And I did find the bus, and then it was, it was sort of a nonplussed experience. It was there, and I told him where it was and come get it. But in doing that, I realized, oh, this guy's going to pay for my trip. And he'll pay for the gas and pay for all my expenses. And, and then while I was there, I ended up finding some other rare European parts for VWs I collected and I actually brought back to the States and I still have some of that stuff uh, that at some point I'll sell, maybe never. So you started looking for this VW bus. I mean, were you much of a detective back then? Did you kind of know what you were in for? 
Uh, n- n- no, the, 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 that that takes a while to develop, I suppose. Uh, you know, I went in and asked. The first thing I went to was a, to a Volkswagen repair shop and asked if anybody had seen the specific 23-window microbus. And they said no, and we went to another place. And, um, you know, like even then, if the car is so unusual, it's it's going to be easier to find because people can recognize, oh, I remember that's the one with the ragtop and all the windows. I mean, there's just not a lot of them. So you might want to go over here to Seapoint or to this part and see if you can dig it up there. So there's a fair amount of detective work involved and, and uh, a lot of leads. And what's fun is that somebody will actually get excited that you're interested in something that may not be of value and they'll take you for a ride. Let's go over to so-and-so's farm and let's see if he still has it. Then you go with, you ride with a stranger and you end up in this barn and you end up finding something else that you want that's more valuable. <laughs> Come back later and then keep looking. And, and, and that, that also builds this real great network of, of, of classic car enthusiasts. And I can still go back to Zimbabwe and I can go back to China and all kinds of places and still talk to people that I met like 30 years ago because it's such a great very very personable experience to, to to resurrect something that somebody would have left for dead, I suppose. So were you a big fan of detectives growing up? Was this something you had deep inside you? Where did that come from to start just being a sleuth of automobiles? That's fine. That's a great question. Uh, I No, I wasn't a big fan of detectives. I was a big fan of Get Smart. It's a great show. There's a fair amount of detective work, you know, answering his shoe, you know, uh-huh. the cone of silence. I was going to say, is this stuff you brought with you? Is this necessary equipment for when you started looking for cars originally? No, oh, okay. just the humor Just the humor behind it's necessary. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but the detective work seems to be uh, secondary in, in, in the sort of adventurous spirit. You, you have to want to be able to just go out your front door and to try the unexpected before you can actually get to where you do more of the linear detective work. Um, so there's still there's still a lot of adventures drive that allows you to want to start even looking, let alone behind a desk. And also, a lot of these things, you know, was before the internet. Well, that sounds funny, doesn't it? Before the internet. Is that B-E? I'm sure there's an acronym acronym for it somewhere. Anyway, so, you know, looking for stuff, write, write letters let, with a pen. But it has ink on paper and a stamp. You lick it. I'd heard of that. I'm not that sure. Yeah, you, okay. you lick it and you put it on. You put it in the mail and you wait three weeks or six weeks. And a letter comes back. Yeah, I got your, you're looking for my 49 Hebmuller. And it went to so-and-so's house. So now six months goes by and you're writing letters to people. And sometimes you call and then, yeah. So I'd assume at this point, because of the Internet, the process has sped up a little bit. Yeah. it and And actually, when you ask a lot of people who have done this sort of thing before the internet, what their opinion on it is now. And I'm not talking about you know, millennials or people that just have experienced the internet now or not know what a f- ringing phone is, but um, you, you'll, find the same, you'll find it's a double-edged sword. It, it allows it to be a lot easier and more accessible and of course instantaneous. But the problem is you can't, I can no longer walk up and knock on a door where I know there's cars behind in the, in the dirt or you can tell that kind of a place knock on the door and so-and-so opens and then you befriend them carefully and you go and ask about the cars because inevitably the question comes up well what do you what do you want for your whatever your Camaro what do you want for your Jaguar or what do you think it's worth or do you want to sell it well I heard you know I, I watched the show on Barrett Jackson and I, and I watched yeah I watched that uh, that show um, where the auction chasing, chasing classic cars classic cars yeah. with Wayne and I, yeah and then 
saw Jay Leno's garage, or whatever, or even better, my favorite is the eBay answer. Well, I saw one on eBay, it, you know, the one with all the windows, and it went for two hundred thousand. So the, the the reference point is is lost because that's maybe a fully restored car, and yes, it's two hundred thousand, but you're looking at a derelict that takes a hundred thousand to get it into into position to be be able to sell it. So, um, it. it as much as I like the internet, being able to find stuff, I don't know how much detective work is involved in that if um, if you can just have the internet let you know when one of these cars comes for sale, as opposed to having to go to a swap meet, talk about it, ask somebody, said, oh, my friend opened the gold country has one, I think it's still in his backyard, then you drive to the gold country, then you try to figure out who this person is. I prefer that, it doesn't get garnered such instantaneous results, but that's the adventure of it, honestly. And the adventure, I would imagine, is what really kind of, for lack of a better term, turns you on to the whole process. It's not lack of a better; it's a perfect way of describing it. Yeah, there, there is quite a, quite a thrill in being able to, to know that you, get to experience a different culture, maybe meet people that you've never been to their country, and sometimes you, like I said, you become friends and you get to stay with them and maybe stay a week and learn some things about their their life and their custom. If somebody has the wherewithal and the enthusiasm to collect something unusual. Well, let's just say it was a, a Chrysler town and country. Where could we find one of those, for example? So if you came and you discovered they had one, you chances are they know uh, if another friend has one or somebody contacted them when they were driving and said, I have one too, my grandfather left it to me. And in doing that, other things show up. So it, it becomes a lot easier once you make the initial contact and friendship with the, with the car owner. You know, the, we're doing this on video. Uh, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, it will show up. Uh, we'll let you know when and where, likely on YouTube. Uh, so you could see we're sitting right now in front of a 1947 Chrysler town and country, four-door version. The whole process that Blue goes through is worth it because of the stories behind each and every car. And that's one of the fun things about what we do here on Talking About Cars is we get people who are celebrities and car personalities like Blue. And, and you are kind of a car personality in the sense that you're attached to the show business realm. Uh, you also have so many different cars. You have contacts with celebrities who are into cars. Uh, the fun stuff about it is the car story. Let's talk about this Chrysler that's in back of us right now. Give us the story about how you came across it and what's the latest on it. That this is couldn't couldn't be any more fresh and and contemporary for me at the moment because this only happened just a few days ago. Uh, I had a good friend in my garage who was looking around and enjoying some stuff, and he saw I had another Chrysler and and asked me about that. And I said, well, I always wanted a town and country sedan, not the convertible, but they didn't make very many of them and they're hard to find. And people don't ever want to turn loose of them. And so as he's looking at my Chrysler sitting there, his phone rings and he answers it and he says, oh, that's funny. I'm talking to a guy right now about a Chrysler town and country sedan. Yeah, and you want to sell yours? And I grabbed the phone out of his hand and I began to speak with this woman. And she said, yes, I joined the Chrysler town and country club to be able to sell our sedan and I said oh I'd love to be able to come look at it or do you want to how, how much do you want for it and this is for me not for someone else because I always wanted one and um, so we talked some more and she said if you can be here by Wednesday at 8 a.m. you can beat the Germans to the car uh, I don't really want to send it to Germany but I would you sound like the right kind of guy to have it and I, it's kind of important 
for me that the right person gets it and they're collectors, which would be great. But if it kept it in the States, okay, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So, so be here, meaning be where? Oh, in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. So the next day I got in my car and I drove for 16 hours and I showed up at her house six in the morning. I slept in my car outside of her gate at eight o'clock. She opened the gate and I came in. I walked about 50 feet and saw it sitting there. And I said, I don't even, I don't even need to get any closer to it. That, that's it. Let, let, tell me, tell me I can take this car home. So we went through all these papers and found out that she and her husband had had it 50 years and she used to drive it to Oklahoma and Texas. And then of course, all the stories. I said, tell me about your earliest memory driving, much like we're talking now. What's your fondest memory driving? And did you ever break down? Did you go camping in it? Uh, that kind of stuff. And, that, and then of course the hours went by and then she stuck her hand out and she said, okay, the car is yours. And I said, uh, well, yeah, that's nice, but I don't know how much it is, and I don't know that that's really true. I didn't show up with a bunch of money. She says, no, no, I, we'll, we'll, we'll work it out, you know. And then the Germans called on the phone. <laughs> ring, ring. Oh, I'm going to have to call you back. She did call back and say, sorry, the car is sold. So uh, last week, I went out with a trailer, had another fantastic day talking to her uh, about all the history and pulling out the original sales brochure and talk, and pictures of it back in the 70s or 60s with her. You have the original sales brochure and everything? I have all. I have the documents, everything, all the way back to 1947 where it was sold in Roswell, uh, New Mexico. Meanwhile, so I guess what we're saying here is, Blue, you figured a way to beat the Germans. Yeah, well, yes, I beat Dumb the Germans. <laughs> I beat the Germans. That was their excuse. Domgov, what are you doing? Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm watching too much Hogan's Heroes in my youth. As you should. I, don't think you, I don't think you can watch enough Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> this is the greatest car in the world. <laughs> <laughs> now, what happened, and again, for those of you listening to the podcast uh, and do not know what a town and country is, town and country is, is a late 40s Chrysler that basically is a Woody. It's, it, they did make a Woody wagon version, which I believe is pretty rare. But for the most part, it's four-door versions. They did a convertible version and all that. And in the brochure that you handed me, there was a, there was a, a two-door coupe, and then there was a, like a shortened wheelbase um, like a sport, shoot now, sport cabriolet? I, I forget the American t term for it, um, a roadster, right. And uh, But they only produced the four-door and the town and country convertible in the eight-cylinder, and this is a six-cylinder. But but they were so expensive to build because there's a fair amount of shipwright work involved. So it's boat building skills as well as car building, and the two together don't always work. And as, as I understand, they even took a loss on these cars um, because they were so expensive to build. And material shortages during the war I guess prompted them to use wood in certain circumstances, which is what this is, but it doesn't make any sense. Aesthetically, it's spectacular. And the town and the country part where you come up to your estate and you let your guests out in front of your palatial mansion, I suppose, it looks fantastic, it looks the part. But, but realistically, the, the metal-bodied version is, is just a far easier car to drive and take care of. But there's not the, the, the splendor and spectacular nature of wood and metal and varnish and you open it up and it smells like an old Chris Craft inside. It's intoxicating. You have so many different cars in your palatial estate here and in your garage um, and you really don't have a garage like we all have and garages. I have the, and I don't have the palatial estate so let's... Well they don't know that. Some of the cars you have here are just very unusual versions. For example we were talking about those Porsches which really don't look like Porsches uh, from 1957. One was celebrity owned. The other one was owned by the guy that uh, actually put together the Porsche company. 
Right. His last name was Portia. Um, the, there was, I didn't see that coming, but I, that's... My, my, my first love of, of cars, let's say, uh, is, is are Volkswagens and Porsches. But, but Porsches because my dad drove one, and that was exciting, but Volkswagens because I could own one, um, the cheaper. Uh, I then became really interested in what they called coach-built cars, which were handmade, special-ordered cars, like aluminum body formed over a wooden substructure. And you could order a car based on a Volkswagen platform, and it had a sport body on it or a cabriolet body. And they made them in limited numbers, of course, and they made them per order for different people. By the time so-and-so went to buy a handmade, coach-built German Volkswagen or Porsche, they, they, they were probably somebody of uh, a person of, of note because the cars were so expensive. It's much like if you track down the history of buying a Talbot Lago, there's probably going to be some interesting ownership involved because they were expensive. And so those cars, when they were new, they were, they were exclusive and they were expensive. So I specialized in restoring and finding handmade aluminum coach-built German cars. And that love never really went away. So the cars that, some of the cars that I have, the German ones and Porsche-based, VW-based, are those handmade aluminum, aluminum cars like that 57 Porsche is called a Beutler because it, it was made by the Beutler brothers in Switzerland. And they were a small firm that, were, that you could contract them to make a handmade car. And even Ferrari had some of their cars built there. And then, they, of course, they rebodied them as Pininfarina. Got a little bit of a cheeky thing there, Mr. Ferrari. But <clears throat> so anyway, that, that silver car there, they made, they made five. One was for the auto show at, um, in Geneva. And then they built four more as a contract. Then they, I guess they canceled the contract and built a total of five cars. Now, reportedly, that's the original one that was built for the auto show in 57. Explain the connection then between Audrey Hepburn and uh, that particular car or those cars in general. Well, since, since those cars were kind of special ordered, they did make some that they sold in a showroom environment. But we're, we're talking five or ten in a show, maybe maybe one in the showroom, but um, she she got one of the early pre-57 Romishes, and supposedly it was mine. The gentleman I bought it from bought it from, uh, bought it from her estate or something in San Francisco, and he remembers that part of the story. Although when he passed away and I went back to go get all that paperwork from his wife, she couldn't find any of it. But I remember even as a teenager, when I went with my mom to Oregon to get that car, he told my mom and I about that history of that car. But I do know that um, Gregory Peck, he got one as well, a Romish, and um, Victor de Gova and the King of Sweden and some other pretty interesting people because, like I said, they were special ordered cars back then. Um, but as to, the, as to the paperwork document on that car, I don't. And for, for a guy who appreciates and involves himself in all of that historical truth of these cars, the car I cherish almost the most, I can't. I can't show her name on it, except on the wall, there's a big, beautiful poster, which we can look at later. It's from an, uh, a shock absorber company called Armstrong, and it is of that car in 1957, yellow with a red interior, and it has the suicide door open, this fashionable lady stepping out of it, and it says, Armstrong Shocks has it in French, and it's that car. And I, somebody gave me that poster 25 years ago and said, oh, that happens to be your car that they use for the ad. And that's that's pretty neat. It's a, it's, and I left the car that same color in there too. Does the lady look like Godfrey Hepburn at all? We're gonna say yes, absolutely. We'll go with yes. Yeah.
ding. The answer is yes. The answer is yeah. <laughs> There's the other one. Now that's the Porsche. That's the one that Mr. Porsche was involved with. Oh, the silver one. Yeah. yeah the boiler. Yeah. That was that uh, coach building firm in Switzerland. And <clears throat> the, part of the reason I know a little bit more of the history of Boitler than, let's say, other collectors or people is that I would go and actually stay with Mr. Boitler at his house with his wife in Switzerland, uh, outside of Thun, Switzerland. I, I would, at, at some point in my life, even, even as a young lad, I would go and visit all my favorite coach builders that built these handmade cars in Germany, and I would seek them out and interview them, even in my 20s. I, I thought that was something special to do. And I'd take pictures of them and their desk and their pen, and I'd have them draw their cars as, as older people even then and show me any kind of old records they have of the Romish or Dannenhauer or Beutler, Ensman, Drews, Hebmuller, all these weird esoteric little handmade companies I'd go and visit. And like I said, to, sorry to get off track here, but I would go and stay with Mr. Beutler. And he had a car he built for himself to sort of um, epitomize the craftsmanship that he, they, he and his brother could do. So he had the best Porsche Beutler, this red, beautiful car. And I would go and drive that car in Switzerland. And I would interview him about his memory. And he would take me to the original factory where they built the cars, even for Ferrari. And, uh, and then we'd go back to his house. And he'd go into the basement, come up with these archives of illustrations of the cars and and all the build sheets and the canceled checks from the count of this and the duchess. What did you do with all the interviews you did? Uh, did they I ever publish? Did they? No, you know what? No, I, I showed them a couple times to like a vintage Volkswagen annual gathering. You know how you sit in a big uh, conference room and everybody, after a bunch of beers, are all sharing pictures and slideshows. Occasionally I'd show an interview with Mr. So-and-so and people got a kick out of that. I never published any of it and I never I never really did anything with it but I got some great photographs in fact okay this is this is you want to talk about stories that, that go on forever uh, which I won't we have the time go ahead I remember sitting at Mr. Boitler's uh, in, in his house in his living room and um, at his table where his lovely wife came and sat with us and she would offer us beer and cheese and meat and then half an hour later more cheese and meat and then more cheese and meat that's what they do and then finally we got around to talking about that car in the garage my 57 boiler and he said um, I know I have some files and papers in the basement he came back up from the basement and he set down this box opened it up and he pulled out original photographs of my car being built by hand by he and his brother okay that's pretty exciting and uh, and then he showed me photographs of different cars being built and um, and uh, and he had blueprints too and he, he and his brother shared duties of course at the factory but he Ernst was the one who did the illustrations did the drawings one of at least someone in a in one of these type of factories is going to be the um, the person who does all of the pre-renderings and the drawings, you know, to sell a customer on what you could have. Do you want the trunk to look like this? Do you want the dash to look like that? So it was him. And even though he was in his, I think at the time he was in his 80s, um, once you ask somebody with any artistic endeavor to, to pick up the pen or paintbrush again and do something, they're reluctant to do so because maybe, oh, that's a thing of the past and we don't want to do that. But the best way to get someone to do that is to try to do it yourself in front of them 
and I suck at drawing. All right, I knew that. So I grabbed the Chip Foose, you're not, I guess. Not, you're not a Dave Kindig. Okay. No. no. So I picked up a, uh, a, a napkin. <laughs> I grabbed a pen, and I said, yeah, you know, it looked kind of like this in the front because we didn't have a picture, and I was trying to draw it. Boy, that, that didn't go over so well. He, he, he slammed his hand down on the table, uh-huh. right, and then got up and walked away. And I just sat there with a little camcorder recording an empty chair, and you can hear him go down the stairs all the way down to the bottom, and then he comes all the way back up, all the way up the stairs, and he puts down a mechanical pencil set in a wooden box. And very creaky, he opens it up, and this might as well be uh, Michelangelo's personal gear. He very carefully goes through these pens, pulls out a mechanical pen, loads the, the, the um, pencil part of it, the lead, and then gets a fresh piece of paper out and kind of wipes it off, and then starts to starts starts to shake his hand back and forth like with Parkinson's, shaking, 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 and nothing's happening. And I'm thinking, I'm about to witness someone have a massive heart attack. He puts the pen down or the pencil down on the paper, and he begins to draw this fantastic illustration of what he remembers my car when he built it in 1957. And he draws this, and I'm staring at it. I pull the camera and I show him drawing it. And he was doing this out of frustration because I couldn't draw. And he wanted to show me, this is, this is what you do. And this is what I do. So he, he drew this great illustration. And he picked it up and he looked at it. And then he grabbed it to uh, wad it and throw it away out of disgust because it wasn't what he used to be able to do. Right? And I grabbed it from him and I put it in my shirt. I just shoved it in my shirt and then tried to start talking about other things. You know, because I didn't want this illustration to go anywhere but to me. Now, you still have all this stuff? I'll get into that. Oh yeah, so uh, so later, so we start talking about how uh, those drawings went into big blueprints, full scale, and they measured the wood and the metal off of the drawing boards. And um, at, at the end of the evening, I took the piece of paper out and I said, "Would you, would you please, um, would you please sign this for me?" And after there was a, a couple of schnapps later, he reluctantly, or maybe not reluctantly, signed the bottom of it. That was the last thing he drew, and he died. So that's the last illustration of a famous designer that, that used to build these handmade exotic cars. And I still have that drawing. All my favorite designers to do the same thing. Oh, wow. When I visit them, I'd have them draw their favorite car. And so I have a nice collection of original um, drawings. And it was those kind, it's that kind of an encounter which adds to the excitement of the car, which is made of steel and glass and can be inanimate. But that, that personal experience brings this stuff to life like nothing else. You know? So now that drawing I have really has a fantastic memory with that car, which is in my garage. Framed? All put up and all that? On the wall? No, because then somebody's going to walk off with it. <laughs> oh, so you've got it hidden away. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it's hidden away. It's actually in the folder that his, his wife gave me. And then she gave me the original photographs, too, of the car and some other documents. And then, um, no, I still have that. It's one of those things where at the time to, to publish it, but if I were to scan it and put it on social media or post it somewhere, it's gone. It's absolutely gone instantly. And there's the benefit of everybody gets to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. But then there's the downside of, oh, oh that's, that's great. Now there's 40 million renderings or copies of the picture he gave me. Oh, I, you know, Tell me what's in your garage right now, and you got a big garage, so tell us about it. Oh, boy. Well, it's not. I mean, it's... Okay. A um, bunch of old German cars. Yeah, okay. There's a, 
Well, I, I still prefer German cars. So I like Volkswagen, Mercedes, and Porsches. I also like post-war Chryslers. I think they're great. That, predominantly, that's what I'm into. So one part has um, a series of rare Porsches, like a late 52 Sport Porsche Coupe. And there's a Carrera Speedster and then the Belgian-made Roadster. Uh, that my dad was my dad's original car, and then that the one your mom talked about that we won't get into. Right, that's not the one, but that is the one. Um, and then they, uh, then the handmade aluminum Swiss car, mm-hmm. and then the German, the German Romish, you know, the suicide door cabriolet, and then I have a, a a Mercedes coupe that was the seventh one off the assembly line, which is pretty special, the original unrestored, and then another white Mercedes coupe from the seventies uh, I got from the original owner. And I have my Dormobile bus that was made in England that I got from the original owner before he passed away. I absolutely love that bus. I've driven to Alaska twice now and crashed it, and, and that's a whole other story. And then, um, and then some some old motorcycles and some old bicycles. That's that's in the one one part. But I I, I will tell you this though that there's there's this been there has been this unofficial program that has sort of evolved, and I wasn't aware of it until a friend came and said you realize there's a pattern to something you do every year and, and what it's turned into is that every year I try to go and find an original owner of a special car that I like and if I can buy it from them and usually it doesn't run and I get it running at their house or their garage or whatever and then I take it and take about a month and drive it all through North America back to my house and I stay and live in the car not in a hotel, not, I mean, in the back seat of the car in a sleeping bag, you know, and, um, and it breaks down and I fix it and, and take these, try to take these period like photographs, the timeless photographs of the car with nothing else modern. And then I get back and I send all those pictures of the dream trip that oftentimes they didn't get a chance to do. And I send those pictures back to the original owners and I do that once a year. And I've been doing that once a year for like almost 25 years now. And they're all one owner original cars. And then Inevitably, a friend falls in love with the story, and I don't have that much room. Or I ask permission from the original owners, even though I bought it, and say, "I've got a friend who can't live without your so-and-so coupe." Okay, all right. And then, then the the adoption process starts over again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so some of those cars, or many of them, are from original owners that aren't going to live forever. And then this way, we can carry on that that lineage. What was your most recent uh, car that you did that with? One we're sitting in front of. <laughs> The Christ, the five days ago, Chrysler Town and Country. But before that, you actually went over, got it started, drove it out here, or? Well, geez, I'm already. Yeah, no, you're right. I, it, I started to work on it 30 seconds after it came in the driveway. I got it to turn over, starter stuck. I'll get it to run. Then I'm going to take it back. I'm going to drive it back to New Mexico, and then take her on a trip, uh, maybe like a one-day trip up to the mountains where she remembers some great memories in it. But because it had to be out of her property there, I, I couldn't camp out and try to fix the car and all that. But I will get it going and take it back. But I'm not sure if I'm gonna, how much restoration work I want to do before I take it back to her because I don't want to restore the car because that takes away all of that history. Right. So it's a, it's a little funny because it's an in-between super nice and not so, so super nice. So. Well, yeah, there's a whole section in the back of it that needs to be replaced and, and all that. So you're going to fix that as... I assume not necessarily um, um, 
properly for some sort of really fancy restoration, but you're going to get it into shape so you can at least drive it around. Yeah, I like a sympathetic restoration, meaning not a concourse, but no, 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 because there's a lot of town and countries that are beautifully restored, maybe even over restored, and I know from personal experience once it gets to be so fantastic and nice i'm actually afraid of driving it and it ends up going to another owner i i just all the work comes in the building of it and then it's so great i'm afraid of rock chips or door dings and i'm terrified and then it goes to someone else who isn't who maybe doesn't have as much invested you know personally and then they can drive and enjoy and i think that's great but with her car i'd like to preserve its originality revarnish the wood to match the patina of the car restructure and build the deck lid varnish it distress the varnish to look like the rest of the car clean it up mechanically get it perfect and then drive it because in this shape it's got rock chips it's got some flaws in it but i'll actually drive it and the best part about this equation would be if i can take pictures and post them here and there given my friends to post right and you get to see a picture of a car that you love actually in an, in in its environment let's say at the redwood forest or yosemite there's nothing more powerful than a than an image of a classic car in an area that you wish to be able to drive it in, but you never will. Well, now you see one driving, and you think, "Well, this guy just did it. I can't wait to find one for myself and go do that." And that that really is a major drive for me to work on these cars, because I already know how to do stuff, and stuff is stuff. It's once it leaves the driveway that it garners the inspiration for you and and your listeners to want to go out and try to find one and, and get that experience for themselves. There is a car in your other garage, um, a blue businessman's coupe. Um, you say it's 40, Four, it? 49. 49 Plymouth. Now, now the businessman's coupe is basically a two-door that back in the day a lot of people would – uh, businessmen would sit there and have this huge trunk in the back. It'd be, basically be a bench seat up front, uh, and they would stick all their um, sales suitcases in the back with all the samples, and they'd schlep all over the place and go do, you know, their, and, and have it all in the back. Uh, and they made those late 40s, early 50s. In fact, they actually made them probably earlier, too. I think that was some, one of their main business vehicles. The story behind that is so fascinating because of just the story itself. Give us the background on that. That car uh, came from, well, it originally came from St. Louis, Missouri, but uh, I managed to find it in North Hollywood. My uncle, Jimmy, lived in North Hollywood, and his neighbor across the street didn't come to the door after a couple of days of calling. They were worried. They looked inside the door and saw Joan laying on the ground. Then they called the paramedics. Paramedics came. They broke the window. Then they tore open the door and found her three days, I think, without, you know, without any help. No, it wasn't so great. They, they took her to the hospital, and what they discovered was that her house was the uh, like a hoarder's environment. She had been collecting and stockpiling and stashing away stuff since for, for like thirty years, right? And it was very, it was inhospitable. Inhospitable? In, inhospitable. That's the word. It was unlivable. You couldn't live in it. It was uh, in- uninhabitable. Uninhabitable. uninhabitable that led her to the hospital. It was uninhabitable that led her to the hospital. And um, so the neighbors decided to get together and clean out the house, get it ready for her to come home. Now, psychologically, for a hoarder, that you're taking away the comfort that they, they're seeking and keeping things, mementos of their perhaps former loved ones. I mean, there's a whole dynamic behind that that you don't want to mess with well anyway they cleaned it up cleaned the carpets 
And in the backyard, they looked in the garage, and in the window was this business coupe sitting there with flat tires. My uncle called me and said, oh, there's one of those great old Chryslers you like. And I said, oh, that's great. What year is it? I don't know what year it is. Just come look at it. So I went over there, looked in there, saw it was a, what it is, and then set a date to where she would come back from the hospital and I could get the car out of the garage, show it to her. So I invited about 75 or so friends, car friends, car nut friends, right? And they all came over on the, one of the only days it ever rains here. She came back from the hospital in a wheelchair. We're all standing in the driveway. I cut the lock on the door and opened the garage door. And she hadn't seen what was in the garage for, I think it was about 30 years. Because her husband came home in the car, put it in the garage, after going to the supermarket, and had a heart attack and died. And then she never went out to the garage and drove the car, didn't have anything to do with it. So it remained closed until I showed up that day and took it out. And in the trunk were all the groceries that were still there from when he passed away. In fact, yeah, in fact, the uh, cereal box is still in the trunk. I, th- I threw the rest of the stuff away. I mean, who wants so to we're keep we're talking it? 1970s? That thing has been still sitting in there? Yeah, something like that, yeah. So uh, we put air in the tires, rolled it out. That means basically the, uh, I believe the sell-by date is probably coming up here anytime soon on that cereal. Yeah, you can ask my friends. They've, got all, they've all got botulism. You can check, check with them on that, those dates there. <laughs> okay. So, Moving right along. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I'm pumped. Hey. So we, we open the doors to the car, and she gets in and sits down and then re- recounts this fantastic history of when they bought the car new. When she, uh, they took their honeymoon in the car and it's backed up with photographs they had in a book and took their Route 66 trip to the new, the new, not the new world, I'd say their new opportunity in California. She became a school teacher, he became postmaster of um, Burbank. And um, so all of those emotional stories came back and flooded her and and really, for anybody who's standing around the car, we began to cry, and it was very emotional. And talked about her husband passing away. In fact, she would continue to get the registration slips on the car and the sticker, but she never took them off and put them on the car because she never wanted to go in the garage. So when she gave me all the paperwork, I had all these years of the stickers still on their original envelopes that were never put on the car. So I left it with the sticker from the 70s, which is still on the back. I never put the updated sticker on the Yeah, it, it still says the... Uh due date, if you will. The expiration date is 1975 on this car. Uh, you can see videos of this car, because I guess Jay Leno came out, and he's doing it on his show. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yep, Jay came, and they shot an episode for Jay Leno's Garage, which airs in November here, coming up, and um, where I actually, to answer your question earlier about have you released any footage, I had a couple of friends shoot some video that day of the experience, and they took some of that footage, and I think they're going to fold it in or edit it into the show and the pictures and all that. That's and be cool. Yeah, it was, a, it, it was even an emotional recounting or retelling of that story when they came and shot the episode. So that, that airs in November. Yeah, that'll be worth seeing again. Jay Leno's Garage in November. I encourage you to go watch that. The cars, we've talked about the cars in your garage. Of all the cars you've had, and you must have gone through a lot of them, is there any car that you had that you no longer have that you would like to get back? Oh boy, oh boy, that's a good, that that that's a that's an excellent question, because in order to facilitate the new stuff you think you need to have, which we don't need anything honestly, 
So for me to get this Chrysler, guess what went away? A car I fell in, I was so in love with, my other Chrysler. So to think, what did I get rid of that I wish I didn't? Oh, that's a, that, that I would, pro I would probably say, well, you know what? My first car, because yeah, everybody wants their first car. That 67 Volkswagen convertible, green and tan that I had in high school. What happened to it, do you know? Um, I restored it and took it to a lot of shows and, got, and you know, I was, you know how people are noted for, for certain cars they bring. Oh, you're the owner of the Cadzilla. You're the owner of the right. whatever it is, Ed Roth special car. So um, I, I thought if I'm going to sell it, I'm going to sell it sort of anonymously. And I took it to, I took it to Pebble Beach week, not Pebble Beach on the lawn, and auctioned it off, I think at RM the night before on a Friday night. And um, I was shocked at how well it did. It, uh, yeah. Why do you think it did so well? Uh, it, well, it did so well because I was there with the car and all these people came up and were looking at it and I was telling stories about how I built it. It's my first car and I earned my money and I was 16 years old. My dad helped me and then I showed it in many shows. I drove it all over the country and that kind of, like I said, that kind of story may have resonated in people who have missed that opportunity in their youth or were busy doing their, their lives, you know, and then they get a chance to to maybe purchase back at auction the quintessential story of what they have missed or that they actually engaged in when they were a kid. Like they built their car with their dad and they could never get it back and now's their chance to buy mine. And I was I was visibly crying when, when the auctioneer and then they came over with the camera and the mic and they're trying to ask me, oh, you're the one who built the car when you were a kid. And I, oh, I started crying and everybody just loved that, just played into the media. I'm like, come on. And then then the bidding went up. And then the person who bought it came and shook my hand. He goes, I, I, I bought your car just really because of the story. I can buy a Volkswagen anywhere. I thought, oh. But you know where it is. Uh, I knew where it was and I, I think he still has it, but I don't. I, I'm afraid to know. I don't know if I really, to answer your question, uh -huh. I'm not sure that I'd want that car back. Uh, certainly because what I'm capable of now as an adult in restoration versus when I'm 16 mm -hmm. would mean I'd look at it and think, why did you paint the piping brown with a spray can? Yeah. Uh, you know. But for nostalgic reasons, of course, that's a good because of what you do, you don't get a chance to really check out or know in advance what cars you're going to look for. But is there any car out there that is number one on the Blue Nelson I want that car list someday? Okay, yeah, another that's another great question. At, in high school, my best friend and I wrote our list, top 10 favorite cars. And when you're 16, you think you know everything? Well, you, you don't know anything. So your list might be like four Camaros in a row and a truck. Uh, well... On my list was this car, the Town & Country, the Chrysler Town & Country, my Dormobile, which I have, uh, the, my, my Romish, which I still have. I mean, there's a, there's a few cars that I actually have that are still on the list. And I didn't take the list with me for 30 years and look. I just recently uh, looked it over and realized, holy smokes, I've actually got and have my favorite cars even from when I was a kid. But there are a couple cars on there that are... That, have eluded me or not not eluded me that I don't own simply because their values are so astronomical one would be any of the French bodied Fagoni Falashi bodied Talbot Lagos or the Delage Delahaye's any of those French cars the French curve cars that they made the spectacular and prices to match of course and then and then oddly enough out of all these esoteric cars and weird handmade stuff that I'm familiar with I always thought the 300 SL Gullwing not the Roadster 
was one of the most incredible creations, how it was built, its race history, there's performance behind it, and, um, and it was somewhat of a production car. I, I still to this day, and you see them all over the place at, at, at concourses, I still to this day think it's one of the most beautiful creations with wheels and an engine. And, I, and, the, and the prices, you know, they just keep going up so they're now more than a house. And do I want to sell my house and live in a car? Yeah, maybe. Maybe that one. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I'd say probably, I'd say a nice original 300 SL. And that day may come if I decide to pry loose from my fingers something else I have and get it going so I can experience it. What about the number one domestic? Number one domestic besides Trump? Let's see. That's kidding. That was a joke. I had to say something there. Hey. hey. Number two domestic. Let's see. Um, I'd say, mm, gosh, uh, any of the big bodied uh, the do any frankly any Duesenberg J model they're oh, uh, they're okay. spectacular. The this this really this town and country sedan is pretty awfully high on my list. Um, I would say maybe down the road one of the um, Bowtail Chords. That's just a timeless classic, and even though it's been reproduced a million times, that's a spectacular car. Uh, really, any of the big giant any of the, the Cadillac big 12s, big 16s, those are great. Or even a 30s Chrysler, for crying out loud, those are fantastic. Big Ford or Phaeton. Just scratching the surface of the incredible stories of Blue Nelson. Dude ought to make a movie out of one of his stories someday. Hey, if you're listening on iTunes, number one, subscribe. It's free and you'll automatically get notified when a new show uploads. Then rate us and write a review. If you're listening on SoundCloud, like us and follow us. Spread the word about our great guests and award-winning Talking About Cars podcast. Also, check out our videos on YouTube. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars. <laughs>